Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about materialism and happiness. Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live Show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Adima Zulkal, your product innovation and value creation expert, and I'll be your host. And to ha- today, I have a very, very special guest, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. And if people are waiting out there, we were starting a few minutes late. That's 100% on me. Your good host, Adi, is not the problem. No, it's fine. People just understand that we're all human and things happen. Erin Ahuvia is a professor of marketing and expert in, on psychology of brand love. Erin is the world's leading expert in psychology, brand love, author of The Things We Love, How Our Passion Connects Us and Make Us Who We Are, a top uh, 20 business book at, of the year at Amazon. Wow. It's going to be really interesting. You're live on LinkedIn and YouTube and Facebook, and you're so invited to join the discussion and ask questions. So we said we're going to talk about materialism and happiness. Maybe we should start with the definition of each one of them. What does that mean? Okay, so let's talk first about happiness because there's actually a lot of different definitions that people use uh, for the word happiness. And it matters a lot because what leads to happiness and what doesn't lead to happiness really changes depending on how you define happiness. So when I've been doing this research, I was part of the group of people who started all of the happiness research. Uh, I am that old. (laughs) I was was actually- We're not gonna talk about age. That's, (laughs) you can say things about my age too. (laughs) Okay, so I am am that old. So I was was there, you know, when, when the movement to start talking about happiness as a research area in the social sciences was emerging. And we thought at the time that, oh, sure, there's a lot of different definitions of happiness, but and they'll be slightly different, but they're all basically the same thing. And so they'll all be pretty much the same. And yeah. that's been shown to be completely untrue. That uh, right. So let's talk about three... The, the, the big two and then another one definition of happiness are, so the, the first definition of happiness uh, is what we call life satisfaction. And that is you ask, just the easiest way to think about these things is to ask how are they measured? And then to think that is whatever is measured when you measure it that way, right? Whatever yeah. you're measuring that way, that's what it is. So life satisfaction is measured by asking people a question like, if you think about your life as a whole, and then you think about a ladder, and the top rung of the ladder is the very best possible life, and that we'll call that a 10, and the lowest rung of the ladder, we'll call that a one, it's the very worst possible life, going up or down. Where is your life on this ladder from one to 10? So that's life satisfaction. And what that is really asking the person to do is to be, very thoughtful, very cognitive in psychological terms, right? And they're not responding that emotionally. They do, emotions matter, 
Um, and they do think like, oh, I've been really sad all, you know, for the past two weeks. I guess my life isn't so good. So that matters a little bit. But mostly it's about your beliefs and it's sort of a mental cognitive judgment you're making. And it's very yeah. much like we call it, uh, uh, life satisfaction. But since this is a product focused podcast, and I assume people around here, a lot of them are designers, you're probably familiar with measures of customer satisfaction or product satisfaction. Right. And it's the same measure. It's the same thing as you measure when you measure customer satisfaction, except instead of it being a product or a brand, it's your life. Yeah, and that's, that's a product. Yeah. I'm estimating right now. Right. Um, okay. Then there's a, what was considered a, a much more complicated uh, way of doing this. And it's called experience sampling. And this is sometimes when people use the word happiness, they, as opposed to life satisfaction, this is sometimes what they talk about. Um, and this is also sometimes called affect, which is emotion. And what you do with experience sampling is you've, now we've all got cell phones, it makes this much easier. You send somebody a text at random, they've agreed to do this. You send them a text at random times and you say, okay, write this instant, like two seconds before you receive this text what were you actually doing and how were you feeling? And so they just write a simple, like I was mowing the lawn and I was feeling, you got some scales, you know, happy, sad, energized, lethargic, anxious, calm. And they fill out this little survey on how they were feeling, et cetera. And then a happy person is a person who, when you ask them these questions randomly during the day, a whole lot of the time, their answers are, I was feeling really happy. I was energized and excited and having all these positive emotions. And yeah. Now, when we, when we started this research, we, we had this intuitive idea, it makes total sense, that um, people who experienced a lot of happy emotions would experience very few negative emotions and vice versa. Right? If right. you're happy, right. people, maybe some people in the middle, and there's other people who are like depressed or sad, and you sort of would have this nice line. What we found right. is... That's sometimes true, but there are also people who experience a lot of strong emotions. So they experience a lot of happy emotions and a lot of sad emotions. And there are other people who are just very sort of stable. Like they're never that happy and they're never that sad. Yeah, they're so like in the middle. Most they're kind of in the middle, right? It yeah. Good things happen, they get a little bit happy. Bad things happen, they're a little bit sad. But they, you know, yeah. they're kind of, they're in the middle most of the time. And yeah. so what you have to do is actually you have to look at, you know, what leads to happy emotions and what leads to sad emotions. And you can't assume that something, the same person who feels a lot of happy emotions doesn't also feel a lot of sad emotions. They're kind of different right. things. So that's yeah. called affect or emotionality, or sometimes people call that happiness. Then later on, people, when this whole thing started, there was this idea which I believed and was very popular. And that was that this was a chance to do research that was normative. Now normative means it gives you an answer about what you should do as opposed to just describing the way things are. It's mm -hmm. gonna tell you how you should behave or should lead your life, assuming you wanna be happy. Uh, and it was gonna do it in a way that was fairly value free. So the reason that it could be fairly value free is that the researcher didn't have to say, this is my, this is what I think a good life is. 
and are you living up to my standard? Right. Um, a good life, you know, they're, they're able to say, you get to define in your own mind what you think a good life is. You decide what makes a life a good life. And then you decide if you're living up to your own standard and, right. and, and things are good. <clears throat> As time went on, for reasons that are complicated, I'm, this kind of went out of favor, in favor of a, a, a definition that's called eudaimonic happiness. And this is this idea of a flourishing life and that we're not just going to look at subjective um, people's like feelings at any moment in the day, right? Instead, we're going to look partly at that. We're going to have like a balanced measure and it's going to take into account a number of different areas of a person's life. And it's going to take into account whether they feel their life is meaningful and has purpose whether they ever, you, yeah, you want them to experience good emotions. So like how they're experiencing good emotions and not so many bad emotions. Do they feel they've been successful? But also, um, do they feel productive? Do they feel like they're making a contribution to society? And you've got this sort of balanced, well-balanced uh, scale with a lot of different things that lead to what we would consider a positive, flourishing life. Uh, one of the reasons for this is that Again, something that seemed intuitively obvious and turned out not to be true with the research. Um, so if we, we would have thought that if you ask someone, okay, you've got all these different domains in your life. Like, how are you doing in your romantic relationships or your marriage if you have one? How are you doing in your friendships? How are you doing at work? How are you doing in your leisure time? Are you interested in your leisure time, um, et cetera? If you asked about all these different domains of life, how that would and you average them together you would find it would be about the same as asking them about their life as a whole. Because you ask them, like, how are you doing your life as a whole? They're going to say, like, well, my marriage is great. My work is not so good. They're going to average them together in some way. And they're going to. Yeah. It turns out that these are really different things and that yeah. they don't influence each other that much so that people can <laughs> um, be can say, like, except the marriage is interesting. So if you can't be happier than your marriage. And you cannot be happy, like marriage is like the top thing that you cannot overcome if it's you can't You can't overcome it. So like if your work life <laughs> is great or your work life is bad, that has very little influence on this, just on the question. I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it doesn't affect whether your life overall is good, but I'm saying that when you ask people a question, how good is your life overall? And their brain answers that question, their brain to a surprising extent, does not bother asking how good is my work life, right? It, yeah. it's, got, it's got some other measure it's using. It's not using that. Um, it does, their brain does include how good is my marriage. Yeah. So if you're- It makes sense when you think about what is needed for humanity and for a person to be um, right. alive and well, right? Right, yeah. And, and so if your marriage, and in particular, you're, it, if your marriage is going very well, this has a positive effect. But if your marriage is going very poorly, this has a very strong negative effect. Your life as a whole is not better than your marriage if it's going bad. It doesn't matter if your work yeah. life is good, if your vacations are good, if you've got a nice hobby, none of that matters. You know, your marriage is bad, yeah. things are bad. You know, um, it's so funny because when you are thinking about what is success and what we aspire to have in life, most of the discussions would not be a good marriage 
Most oh. people will not say that, right? Although it's oh. very influential. Totally. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been going on, I realized for some time, I'm an academic, I can talk forever. Uh, but, you know, I've kind of been dwelling on these different definitions of happiness because they make such a big difference. And when people say, like, what leads to happiness? It's totally different. So if you use this measure of um, on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is the best life, how, life, how good is your life? The amount of money that you make, it does not make as big a difference as people think it will. Uh, people are have way exaggerate that, but it does make a yeah. big enough difference that you can't say it's trivial. It, it is one of the things that matters. And yeah. it makes a lot of sense because what you're kind of asking the person is, well, how successful is your life? And if you think about, at least in English, if we say that person is very, quote, successful, what that means is they make a lot of money. Right. That's, that's our definition. That's sort of the, what the word success means in to most English speakers yeah. in right. this context. So, right. so that, you know, if you ask someone how successful is your life, they think, well, the best life is like what I see on Housewives of Real Housewives, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Got all the mansions and everything. That's the best life. Yeah. Right. Like if if you ask my my household with my kids, I have four kids, and three of them are boys, they would more or less say LeBron James. That's <laughs> that's the guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so in any yeah so 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 that makes a big difference. But if you use this other measure of like you experience sampling, where you ask people at various times during the day, you know, right this moment, how happy are you? What are you feeling? It's very easy then, if you know how much money the person makes, it's very easy to simply see, okay, the people who have a lot of money, are they happier more of the day than the people who have less money? And the yeah. answer is no, not at all. It, like it I heard, sense. you know, I heard in the past that I've, like you need to make a certain income. And when you exceed that, it doesn't really matter. Below it, it's really, influential so if you don't have a house and you can make a living yeah. right so there is a kind of an amount of a come to average i don't know what the amount is right but, right that, that is that is also true and part of the reason we say that it's certainly true and it's certainly true that um if you give a thousand dollars to a millionaire it will not produce very much happiness if you give the same thousand dollars to someone living on the street, it'll produce a great deal of happiness. Right. And we can measure that, and and that is absolutely true. <laughs> um, but even you know, if you go down, if you're doing using this experience sampling method, where you're just like, how do you feel at this moment? And you go down below that level to someone who's earning you know twenty thousand dollars a year. There, it makes a lot less difference than you would think. I, really? part, yeah, part of the reason that, I mean, I'm going to spill the beans. I, I don't know. I can't guarantee this is true for everybody. I can only, I think it's true for everybody, but I'm really talking about myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to come off as the asshole who says that money doesn't matter to poor people. And so when we, when we frame this, that is true that money matters more to poor people, a lot more. And if we wanted to maximize happiness in the society as a whole, we'd take a whole lot of money away from rich people and we'd give it to poor people. And that would really be a good thing to do. And I'm very much in favor of that. But it is surprising that 
unless you're like homeless on the street, uh, you, I would have thought that having more money, you know, because I, I look at things, for example, my car needed repair. And I was annoyed. It cost $800. I was very annoyed. This stupid thing came up and I had to spend $800 on this repair. But there are surveys that show that in America, I don't remember the number, but a shockingly high percentage of the population would not have, does not have $400 on hand in case something urgent like that comes up. And so their car needs an $800 repair. They are out of luck. They get in, they're really in a crisis. And so you would think, I would have thought that because of that, those things happen often enough. Yeah, of course. Medical bills, yeah. things that happen to you. Yeah, right? when you measure this, it would show up more. But actually in these surveys, when you measure this, it shows up a little bit. It's there, You can. it's statistically significant. It's not that huge of a deal. People really find a way in their mind to adjust to a lot of different levels of income. Um, yeah. So, so what, what are you saying that what people, most people would say that rich people are happier. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing that most people would think. And what you're saying, if you're measuring their own experience at the moment, not when they think yeah. about it, what they got, like right now, are you happier? or not, or as happy as you could be. And most of them are not happier on average. Right, and there's another study, that's exactly right, Adi. And there's another study, which I think is super informative. It was very clever, simple study. So they looked at married couples where the couple pools their income. So that if, you know, let's say person A earns $20,000 a year and person B earns $200,000 a year, both of them as a couple are living off of $220,000 a year. Right. So what this means is the amount that they consume is dependent on like the combined income. But there's another right. issue, which is like how proud of you, of yourself do you feel based on like how successful you are. And that sense of pride is really pegged to your individual income, not sure. to the couple's income. So it lets you separate the effect of having nice things and consuming at a high level from the effect of knowing that you have a high income and feeling proud that you are successful in that way. Yeah. Right. And it turns out all of these measures of happiness are very strongly linked to the income that you earn, but they're not linked to the amount of money you have to spend on stuff. So, wow. uh, so it really is this feeling of being successful and being valued that drives this yeah. more than like being able to have nice things. I'll tell you one anecdote that really drove this home to me. I was at, a, so there's a, a, a gentleman um, uh, I'm friends with who came into, married into a family that had a lot of money and they had a, were very charitable, so a very philanthropic family. And he was given a budget to work on philanthropic projects with and he brought a group of people who study happiness together at the family estate um, in the French Riviera overlooking the Mediterranean. Fabulous, beautiful, astonishing place. But um, at this, when 
for one of the meetings before we got there, there was some confusion within the family and somebody else in the family had been booked to use the estate. So he couldn't put his people in the estate. So he put us in this like five star plus resort, you know, where the rooms were all like a thousand dollars a night, you know, for the rooms, uh, you know, and that wasn't even like an all inclusive. It was like thousand dollars to $2,000 a night. And then you pay some huge thing for the restaurant and whatnot. And so there I am in this uh, place and we're studying happiness and I can't help but notice that I am not happy. And (laughs) even though I'm not paying, all I can think about is like, this is $2,000 a night or whatever it was, some economical (laughs) amount of money. This should be perfect. This, you know, there was this tiny little problem here and this tiny little problem there. Those shouldn't be there, right? Because yeah. it's so expensive. And it was really, it bothered me. And there, there is uh, research on this and it shows that um, this is so much in tune with people's intuition, but it just uh, confirms what we all kind of knew already. That if you have, say in my family, sushi is a big splurge. We love sushi. It's very expensive. If you have sushi like on special occasions, you really love it. If you have sushi three times a week, it stops being special and you don't like it as much. Um, And (laughs) furthermore, your expectations go up. So if if you're used to things going wrong a lot, you just kind of say it's it's a pain, but you kind of take it in the stride. And if if you expect everything to be perfect at every moment, you know, then you get really upset when some little thing happens. Yeah, right. And I think it really balances out when people think about it. They're like, well, I went to this fancy restaurant and I was thrilled. If I was super rich, I'd go to a fancy restaurant every night and I'd be thrilled every night. But of course that's yeah. not right. You'd be thrilled for the first three nights and then it would go away. Yeah, yeah. It's like you get used to everything, if, whether it's bad or good, you get used to, this is the standard. Right. And the same goes with, with the, when you compare yourself. If all your neighbors are richer or in the same level, then you compare it to yourself and if you feel all the time that you're a bit more rich than the others that's fine then you move to another neighborhood and then all your neighbors are richer it's absolutely true that you that people have a comparison standard in their head that they're judging themselves against and that when you get richer that comparison standard goes up um we used to think that that was going to be the comparison standard was set by your neighbors just like you were saying that's one factor that influences that comparison standard. Mm-hmm. It's not the biggest factor. And what was really surprising is when, again, when the, we started doing this work like 30 years ago, there was this belief that a middle-class person in a poor country would be about as happy as a middle-class person in a rich country because they would both look at their neighbors and they both think I'm middle-class. Yeah, I'm in the middle. I'm in the yeah. middle, right? And that yeah. will be the same for both of them. Turns out the middle class person in the rich country is much happier. Really in the rich countries? In the rich countries, much happier. And there's a number of reasons for this. One, which is kind of straightforward, is it's a lot nicer in rich countries. Uh, um, yeah, but that's a general thing. You could say like happiness in a nice country is the same for all the in middle and, and, and high class and everyone is happier, right? Yeah, everyone is happier. The difference of in happiness between rich and poor countries is actually pretty strong. And that um, is, you know, it has to do with people's sense of having opportunity. 
um, a fair judicial system. Uh, you know, if, if something goes wrong, there's a safety net, you're not going to starve. Uh, so there's a, just a lot of reasons. And also some of the research I've done has to do with culture, which is that over time, uh, if, you, if you live in a poor country, you develop a culture where individuals don't have a lot of choice about their own life. Uh, you know, if you think about like what things were like in the medieval period, or if you're in Israel, so there's some more collectivist segments of the society that are very traditional. We're still in the, in the, in the Middle yeah. Ages in some cases. Maybe in Meisharim or, you know, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you don't get to choose your own spouse. You don't really get to choose your own job. Like that's sort of assigned to you. You don't get to choose your own beliefs. It's very strong. There's a lot of social pressure that you must believe you know, one certain thing. Um, and as a result, your life can often not fit you very well. Whereas when cultures get richer, and this is very, very well established in, in research, <coughs> they start to change. And it's not a fast change. It takes place over many generations. But you get a change where you do get to choose your own job and your own mate and your own beliefs and your own music and you dress the way you want. Um, and now we're seeing like this trend just continuing. So the most recent, you know, 15 years ago or so, uh, 20 years ago, it was gay liberation. And it was the idea, well, if you, if your internal compass points you towards, you know, homosexuality, you get, you don't have to suppress that. You don't have to pretend that's not there. You can express that kind of thing. Right. Um, and now uh, what's coming out is the trans stuff. And this is like, well, if your internal compass says maybe you have a male body, but internally your compass points you towards being a woman, you get to follow that internal compass there as well. And that general ability to like lead the life you want to lead on the big issues, that actually, people are happier in those cultures where you get to do that. Um, but let's let's say when we think about India, that's the first country that comes to my mind, which is very spiritual and everybody lives in the same casta, in the same like level, where they, they are born to a level of of the society. And and it seems that some of them are much more calm and content. I would I don't know if it's happiness, but it seems that they are less like stressed, or maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember about India specifically. Um, there are certain, we can talk about meditation too, because meditate, most people in India don't meditate. Um, you know, that's, a, that's, that's but it is yeah. part of that culture. If you, if you right. do meditate, whether you're in India or, or Israel or anywhere, that actually can help, measurably that can help. Uh, but, and there are sort of ways of, you can cultivate a, a point of view or consciousness or framework of the world that uh, can help you be happy. And that's very true. Um, and there are some cultures, though, that are notably happier than others. Uh, so in general, the least happy places in the world tend to be the very poor countries in Africa. Um, and the happiest places, as most of us know, if you follow this research at all, Scandinavia. Scandinavia. They always rule. They always do the best. Um, yeah. But other, like the, Europe and the United North America does fairly well in general, not quite as good as the Scandinavian countries, do fairly well. Um, the countries though that overperform are the Central and Latin American countries. So- Yeah, but that's because they have sun. It's like unfair advantage, I think, right? <laughs> 
it's really interesting because it is a cultural stereotype, at least in the United States. People talk, they're poor, but they're happy. You know, you hear that sort of cultural stereotype. Yeah. And it, it's actually kind of true. They are happier than if you look at the sort of the, the external conditions that they live in. They, you know, they're happier than you would expect by quite a good amount uh, from yeah. the, those external conditions. So they do have a kind of a culture that seems to produce uh, happiness, um, even if it doesn't yeah. produce great wealth. Uh, when you're thinking about, you know, I, I've been to Berlin uh, a month ago, and it was the grayish place I ever been. Like everything is gray. It was all gray. All the all the colors of the sky was gray. All the buildings were gray. Everything was gray. And I thought, like, how could people really live each and every day? It's not like me came for a week. Each and every day, you go outside and you see everything is so pale and and gray. When you go outside in Israel, you have sun all the time. By the way, in general, surprisingly, Israel is kind of up in when, when they measure happiness. Nobody knows what's what's the reason. It doesn't make sense, you know. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's related to the fact that we are very small and close, and the fact that we have a sun. It's a very vivid color. Then you go outside and you feel that. The the sun is interesting because. There's not a lot of, it, on a sunny day, I know my mood is better. And I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, and it's, the winters are fairly cold, but the worst part is how gray the winters are. It's just, there's no sun at all. There was, I remember, this was many years ago, there was a headline in this newspaper in the spring that said, over the past winter, you know, the, the weather service has totaled up the results and there were a total of five hours wow. where, where, where there were not clouds so the sun would come through and of those five hours three of them were at night so there wasn't the sunshine so we only had two hours <laughs> in the daytime wow. the other three hours the sunshine were at night you know so it was it can be really unpleasant however so it makes a lot of sense that someone mad. Yeah, it does, but I, I'm not sure. It, it, it's my intuition. You know, when I go to Italy or Spain or Greece, it's so obvious for me that I feel at home because it's a very similar weather. And people yeah. are very loud, which is good for me because it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, I should tell you a funny story about the loud thing in a minute. But, uh, sure. uh, but, the, but the research... They've got a lot of research that looks at people who live in sunny environments and they don't seem to be happier once you control for other no. things. And people who move um, from, say, Michigan to California where it's sunny all the time, they do not get happier after the no. move. But most no. people go to to have like their pension like in Florida and in San Francisco, right? Like that, yeah. these are the places. You, you think so. So it's, it's, a, that's a little weird. Now, maybe my, I haven't looked at that data in a while. Maybe the maybe newer data, but that was, that was surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, so you will tell me about the loud story and then I'll ask you about people who became rich. So we, right. they are very proud of themselves. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The loud stories. <laughs> um, so there's a, a, a group, you know, the Dalai Lama has, uh, a lot of interfaith outreach. And in one group, he had a group of rabbis uh, that were, were meeting with him and they were having sort of an interfaith and intercultural exchange. And uh, 
there was someone, one of the Buddhist monks that was around, somebody else, another Buddhist monk was speaking and they made some gesture or whatever. And a little bit later, one of the, the rabbis asked, he said, that was very interesting. So what had happened there? And it was explained to him, it's like, oh, when somebody else is speaking and it triggers an idea and you'd like to speak next, you make this little gesture and it indicates to people that, you know, you want to speak next. And <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, in Jewish culture, we have a, a very similar kind of thing for that situation. We interrupt. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think that most people, when the first time when they interact with Israelis, first they find them very rude. We're not aware of it most of the time because it's really obvious for us that we we are loud. We're in, inter, 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 like thinking together and and talking together. It doesn't make sense to most people, and they see it as arguing. But for us, this is how we talk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, I wanted to ask you about your name, but that would be the next thing. Ah. After, after you'll tell me about people who were poor and then they became really, really rich. Uh, right. we, can, we, can, we can go back to LeBron James, but it's just one example that I hear at home all the time. But, but tell me about that. Right. So it depends on how they became rich. Uh, Lottery winning is not a good way to get rich. Uh, it seems it it's nice you get a lot of money, but because you're sort of all your friends come and mooch money from you, it's very bad from your for your social relationships. And one of the things that is really super clear from the research um, at the time this interview is being conducted, it's a little bit after this study was released from. Uh, Harvard, they've been following this group of people for, I think it's like 85 years, extremely long period of time, this longitudinal wow. study following people and their descendants over time. And the big headline that they're promoting from the study is, you know, there's really one factor beyond genetics. Genetics influences your happiness. But beyond genetics, there's one factor that has a strong impact on your happiness and that's the quality of your social relationships, your friendships, your marriage, your family, all that stuff. Um, and when you win the lottery, you get a lot of money, but it tears up your social relationships. And, and that's not a good trade. Uh, so that's not a good way to do it. On the other hand, if you make a lot of money, um, you go from poor and poor to being rich, you do often feel more successful. So again, sure. you can measure that. By saying, on the whole, you know, how good a life do you have? How successful have you been? And people, yeah, I've been very successful. I'm a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, again, if you just go with this sort of experience, how are you feeling at any moment of any day? Um, it doesn't really make very much difference. It really? Doesn't. Even if you're a billionaire, even if you're Elon Musk or Oprah, like there is, <laughs> there is some data. This is, this is a constant problem in this research. Okay. So there are differences that are small but measurable. And the question is, how do you present that difference? Do you emphasize that it's small or do you emphasize that it exists and it's measurable? Yeah. So the theory is, and I, and the data seems to show, I know of just one study, and I'm a little skeptical when everything's just one study because so many times things conflict. But according to the study that looked at that a lot and was able to look at super rich people, 
there is a bump up. And I actually hypothesized this looking at some of my own data many years ago. There's like a bump up because when you get to the point that you don't need to do anything you don't want to do. So a lot of times people such as myself work, you know, successful professionals. Um, most of the world would see us as very wealthy and I have a lot of privilege. You know, I eat very well. I get to run around the world doing things. Um, but there's still all kinds of things I have to do that I don't want to do. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things with my job that, you know, I would rather have somebody else deal with this. And I, I can't, you know, I still have to deal with it myself. Um, but you get to a certain point where you just outsource everything that is unpleasant to you in any way. And you just spend your whole life doing only the things that are most pleasant. And it does yeah. seem to be a bump up in happiness when you reach that. Really? Yeah. When That's you reach, surprising. When you yeah. reach that level, it's you got to be really rich. Right, so yeah, got but, but I imagine you have people all around you all the time doing everything. Like I, I heard in one of the interviews with Oprah, she said that she never changes the, the toilet paper. Never, right. ever. It's always like ready for her. Oh, like in, like in a hotel, oh, like tied yeah. up. And I thought about it. Like you have people all around like doing things for you all the time. And you could be so lonely. It doesn't matter if you have a hundred servants. Like it's the mundane things that you feel that you're doing things for yourself, that you're, I know, growing, that you're learning, that you're doing stuff. You could just sit somewhere and everything would be done, right? Well, you it does require a lot of people, if you're someone who goes from being poor to being rich, yeah, you did that because you have an internal motor that keeps you going. Right. And, and when you get to be rich, that doesn't turn off. I right. see that. So you're still doing things that you feel are important. You're just sure. not doing the things you don't think are important. I see that in academics to a really just shocking degree. Um, when you get tenure, you have a lot of job security. And you could, if you wanted to, slack off a lot. Uh, and you would think that people would. And it amazes me how many of my fellow academics and myself work like every moment of every day. Like I just work way too much. <laughs> and yeah. we just keep going like, why are you doing this? You could stop. And it's because, right. well, you're the kind of, it's very hard to, to reach the level where you get tenure at a good university. I mean, it's extremely hard accomplishment. And anyone who does that is someone who has this internal drive and that just does not go away. Uh, when, you know, just because you get this uh, piece of paper that says you have job security. So yeah. it, it's, it's shocking. So I think people have that internal drive. I think that keeps them going. Um, I do know, here's my very non-scientific personal observation, which is I've looked at people <coughs> who are the spouses of wealthy people. And this is no scientific evidence. It's just in my own life, I've been around wealthy people. People who are the spouses of wealthy people, um, there's they fall into two categories. One are people who said, I now have the financial freedom to do the important, interesting things I want to do. They pursue that. They do great. They have a great life. And I envy them and more power to them. 
And then there are people who are like, oh, I've always dreamed of being rich. Being rich means sitting in the, the sun all day doing nothing. Now I can do that. Manicure. I'll do manicure. Right. Like that's what people think. I, I'll do my face. I'll do manicure. I'll sit and, and drink coffee with my friends. Yeah. Right. And that's what you're going to do all the time. And they do this for, you know, 20, 30 years. At the end of that 20, 30 years, they are, in my experience, noticeably mentally enfeebled. They, you know, you talk to them. I talk to them. And I'm like, Wow. I really, I really wouldn't want to be you. <laughs> they really seem like they're not mentally sharp. Their life revolves around the stupidest, pettiest, most ridiculous things. They're like, at the golf club, you know, we're on this committee that organizes the charitable event. And that's my, that's like what I do once a year, I organize this charitable event. And it's all about infighting with the other people on that committee about, yeah. you know, like who's going to sit where at the table. And that's what their life is about. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have this discussion. It's like at least once a year with my sister. And she tells me if I wouldn't need to work, I would never do that. I would just go and maybe I'll volunteer. I'll read books. I'll go to, to, to courses, whatever. And I wouldn't do that. And I always tell, okay, like half a year, one year, three years, this is what you're doing. But in the end, you want meaning. You you want to to feel that you're contributing right. to society, that you're you're doing something that has meaning and purpose for you. And we always have this argument. And she she says, no, it's enough for me. <laughs> I would just do that. So yeah, maybe no, it, you, you but in people, there's there's many many anecdotal stories of people who make the big bucks. No, they can. I can now retire and just live in luxury for the rest of my life. They do that. They buy the sailboat. They do it for six months. They're like, this is a disaster. And they <laughs> go back to work in some way. Yeah. And so, but I would like, if I really could do, you know, had, had that much money that I could not do this, I would definitely pursue the kinds of projects that I am. And one of the things I think is enviable about my life is that I'm able to, part of the reason I work so hard is that I'm working on the projects of the same things I would be working on if I wasn't getting paid for them. So yeah. it, it, that's very nice, but I would outsource things. Like I would definitely have a social secretary who sorted through all my email. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we have AI, you'll have it like really, really soon, it's okay. Well, I want, I want, like, this is my fantasy. My fantasy is like, I'm driving in a car or being, you know, I'm, I'm a billionaire, so I've got a chauffeur. So I've got a chauffeur driving me in the car. Oh, you have a chauffeur and a Bugatti. In a Bugatti. Well, no, I, the two months environment, it'd be some sort of an electric car. I don't want to hurt the environment that way. Okay, so, okay. But, but I'd, be, I'd be in my electric car with the chauffeur driving along and my, social, my secretary would either be there with me or on the phone. And my secretary would say, okay, you got 17 emails. This one wants lunch on this day. Yes, this one wants this. No, this one, and that would be like, and it would be like three minutes. I just go through, yes, no, yes, no. And then it would all be gone. And <laughs> I wouldn't have this overflowing inbox. That every time I look at it, I feel terrified and guilty wow. about like, what am I missing? And what are those emails that I haven't answered? Yeah. So I have an answer for you. I have like 20,000 emails that I did not read on my email. Uh -huh. And I don't feel any any regret or, or blame for that. 
it's like, yeah, I didn't get to that. Maybe it was not that important. So, and I don't need a secretary for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you mentally adjusted, which I have to, I commend you for that. I know. So let's talk about the connection of materialism, well-being and mental health. So how do we make the connection of these? Materialism, well-being, and I'm sorry, what was the third? And mental health. Mental health. Yeah. So, um, well, usually mental health drives the other stuff. So mental health is super important. It is one of the things that relates very strongly to happiness. And, uh, and it will drive. So when we look at, say, materialism, the materialism has a negative correlation with happiness and well-being. There's a lot of different ways of measuring materialism and thinking about materialism, but in virtually every way, except one uh, that we can, might talk about, every way that we've measured materialism, it's negatively correlated with psychological well-being. Wow. That, that's surprising. Most people would be very happy to live in a materialistic, capitalistic society and not in a place which is more, um, I don't know, socialistic. How, how, how would you say? Like, what does that mean for them that they're not ha less happy? Right. So this is this is a very is now we got to get into the down to the weeds. Right. Because people living in capitalist societies, especially if they are capitalist, but a little on the egalitarian side, do tend to be much happier than people living in socialistic societies. Um, so that's, it's actually good. And people who are wealthy, um, again, you know, there's, there's no downsides that we found. It may not produce the happiness that you think it's going to, but it's certainly not a bad thing. And there's all sorts of other advantages aside from your psychological well-being. So um, that's good too. But if you look at people, you know, within a society, so you compare different Israelis to each other, as individuals, some of them are more materialistic than others. Right. And they, the people who are more materialistic uh, have lower levels of psychological well-being. Um, they tend to have problems with, um, not everyone by any means, but statistically there's a relationship to uh, drug and alcohol abuse or other sorts of behaviors like this. There's problems with debt that can come in to this. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of ways in which uh, materialism and in, you know, comparing individuals to each other is, is not a good thing. But and, when, what comes to my mind and tell me if it has any connection is like, at least in Israel, and I think it's in most Western countries, the people who are most worried about buying the brands and what, how would it look and what would they buy that would look well are usually people who are less, less who has less money, right? The, like if you're living in a very poor um, neighborhood, it will be very important for you that you have the iPhone and you would have the Air Jordan and like Air, these are very important for you. But if you're living in a high society neighborhood, it's not that that important. It doesn't give you the value or, or you're not considered more valuable if you have that. This is this is a, something I've actually been studying this exact issue and um, it's complicated. All right. So 
everyone listening probably has heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs would say, oh, if you're poor, you're just going to care about, you're not going to care about the brand. You're poor. You just want something that's practical and useful. And the only people going to care about the symbolic value of a brand are going to be affluent people. That's totally not true. Um, people who are poor often feel disrespected because they are often disrespected and they notice that. And so they feel disrespected. Um, yeah. And as a result, uh, they things that are symbolic ways of gaining respect become very important to them. And if you're interested in this, I have a whole chapter on this in, in the book that um, I can't go into, but, it, but people find that helpful sometimes because it goes through some of the details here. Yeah. So what will happen is a lot of times they'll create subcultures that develop their own styles and their own fashions and they, those become very important and so that they can have status with the people who matter the most to them, their friends in their community, they can yeah. get status and they can do it in a way that's affordable to them. Um, but they also are aware that outside of their community, there are these measures of status which are different. So let's just use you know, one sort of extreme example, um, sort of hip hop culture, right? So hip hop culture, one of the things that you got in the inner city and that spread to other places was this fashion among men to have pants that like hung down that where the, the, you could see their underwear pulling up from the, right? Yeah, um, right. Hung down very, very low. That look inside, if you're in a group of friends and everybody dresses that way, that look gives you status. But when you go into the wider society, that look is the opposite of status. So they're not blind, right? They, they get it that other people don't appreciate this and that those other people um, in their mind, they often have a very simple idea about it because they're not really part of that more wealthy society. And in their mind, all oh, those other people, they want Mercedes and Gucci and whatnot. And so then you also get within, say, hip hop culture, this fixation on bling. And you know they they rap the rap yeah. all this talk about right. I drive this Mercedes and you know all this stuff about how how wealthy they are yeah. that's very important and that and that goes with this. However, yeah, um, there is what you're talking about, Adi, is kind of an what what Ronald Engelhardt, a sociologist, called post materialism, which is that when you grow up with material comfort, uh then you are often less worried about money and less worried about status because you feel more secure in your own status. And you see this in a lot of high education communities um, where status is really about how smart and sophisticated you are rather than being how rich you are. And so there's still a status competition like, so if you look at, you know, these sort of high education, knowledge workers, creative workers, academics, writers, you know, playwrights, all these sorts of people, we still compete on status. But it's about being knowledgeable and being a connoisseur, knowing what's best and being smarter than the average person. And this is all what's called cultural capital. That's how we compete on status. And status remains important. It's just a different measure and a different, 
Arctic. And yeah. if you think about it, lots of communities have different things. If you go into the, the Haredi community, you know, they compete on status too, but it's who knows the most Talmud. That's that's their source of status, right? And, which is, you know, different. It's a kind of cultural capital. It's a lot more like being an academic who is the most public. Yeah. Uh, so but, you, you get this so, just one more thing. Yeah. There are also, though, very wealthy communities where um, they want to distinguish themselves from the upper middle class. And in those communities, displaying an enormous amount of money is very important. And so one of the things that we see now is this incredible boom in super luxury yachts, like these insane luxury yachts that can cost up to $500 million. Wow. And the reason for this is that it's the last, you know, it's if you're a multi-billionaire, you just wanna show you've got more billions than the other billionaire, <laughs> you can buy this yacht for $500 million. As a money, even if you're a billionaire, you know, if you've got $1 billion, you're going to spend half of it on a boat. So it really shows that you're, you know, you're wow. out there. Um, so but but you know, what, what makes me think about these super, super rich people, billionaires? Yeah. When is the point, or is there a point that they say that's enough? I'm no. so rich. No. Right, because one of the things that I've, I've learned about these people who are, get to be these mega billionaires is when you interview them, I, remember, I can't remember the sources, but someone was interviewing them and saying, well, like, what's the difference between you and people who are wealthy but not super billionaires? And they say, oh, I don't stop. Like the people, you know, when you get $100 billion, you could just stop. And lots and lots of people stop at that point. But the reason we're mega billionaires is we're the people who don't stop. And so if that's your orientation, you're not going to stop. Um, wow. and, and it's all competitive. It's, it goes back to the whole thing. We started this whole conversation talking about the difference between happiness as, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how good is my life, which is sort of a comparative, how do I compare to other people versus happiness as at any given moment, how do I feel, which is not really very much about your comparisons to other people. Uh, and People, you know, who focus on the comparison, the social comparison, there's always competition. They always want to be number one. There's always somebody richer or there's somebody, even if you are the richest person, there's the people who are number two and number three. And you got to keep ahead of them. So yeah, you need to keep the first place. You got to keep first place. So it's never that never stops if that's your orientation. Yeah. But what you're saying is like more or less the subjective and the objective feeling. Subjective is compared to other. Objective is how do I feel right now? Or how do I feel internally? And most people would, most of the cases would think about subjectively, like compared to others. Yeah. How am I compared to others? But that's what makes me feel happy. But what you're saying that if we're thinking that most people would say, when I have the Mercedes, when I have the Lamborghini, when I have the Bugatti, yeah. then I will be happy. In most cases, it doesn't happen. Well, it's very easy to understand that when you realize that <clears throat> only 30% of the world's population owns a refrigerator, keeps food in a refrigerator. Um, so if you're, among, yeah, 30. So if you're among that 70% of the world's population does not own a refrigerator, you might think if I had enough money to have a house with electricity 
and a refrigerator and a stove in my house, indoor plumbing, right? Um, that would be it. I would stop. I mean, I would just be rich. And of course, yeah. everyone listening, I don't know about everyone, almost everyone listening to this podcast has indoor plumbing and a refrigerator. And a, yeah. you know, we're not stopping. So right. from their perspective, from you know, someone in Bangladesh, you know, they don't understand why we don't stop. Yeah. So one of the questions that I wrote here is how come that we have so much more than the kings 200 years ago, and yet we have so much anxiety and depression? So I think that what you just said is the fact that we always want more and the fact that we're not satisfied and we're not saying, okay, that's enough. Now I'm content. I got to this place that I could just rest. Because of that, we're always stressed. Yeah. So we do, I think we do overstress ourselves. It's a good problem to have. One of the things I noticed from a sort of a philosophical perspective that I'd love to share with your listeners, because I think it's very important. Um, is that what does the word problem really mean? A problem means there's something that you would like to be the case that isn't you. Something is true now, you wish it were otherwise, right? Whatever that might be. And if you have any sort of a project or any sort of a goal that you're working on, you inherently have problems. Because the minute you say, I want to walk, I want to be on the other side of the street, it's a problem that you're not on the other side of the street. Yeah, right. So, so your life, you are never going to get rid of your problems. It is inherent to life that, you know, the only way you would get rid of your problems, if you were somehow satisfied with a life with no meaning and no purpose and no goals, if that, you know, and we don't want that. You want a life with meaning and purpose and goal. So any life is always going to have problems. So instead of thinking, how do I get rid of my problems? You need to think, how do I, how do I find the right problems? What are the best problems to have? And how do I get, you know, shift some bad problems into better problems? You know, cause there's always going to be problems. And yeah. for a lot of people, one of the problems we have is that we have so many attractive opportunities of how to spend our time that we can't, Shoot, we, we can't do all of them. And so one of the things that we do as a result is we overschedule ourselves and cause ourselves a lot of stress because there's just so many things we want to do. Um, and that is a real problem and we should work for solutions, but it's also a really good problem. Like the problem, <laughs> your problem is that there's so many good things you want to do that you can't do them all. That's like yeah. a really good problem. That's a great problem. And we, we should yeah. remember that, you know, yeah, it's a problem, but it's not a bad problem to have. You're going to have a problem. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm rethinking about the things you said, and I'm not sure I understood why materialism, as a person who is more materialistic, is less happy. Because it seems like obvious if he gets more. Let's say I, I say, okay, when I get my first million, I'll be more content. And maybe it's two million or 100 million. It doesn't matter. But when I do get that, I'm supposed to be happier. I'm working for it. I've done all my best in order to get there. Why is it negative and correlated to happiness there's, compared to someone who is less materialistic? Right. So there's two reasons for that. The first has to do with mental health. Um, and that is that what's happening is it's not, this is, this is two reasons. So number one, in reason number one, it's the materialism is not the cause of the unhappiness. There are things that happen earlier in your life, um, like bad relationships with your parents, 
um, a lack of love in your life, etc. And these things make you unhappy and they also make you materialistic. Mm. And so <laughs> as you get richer, you still don't solve the underlying psychological problems that you inherited from your childhood or maybe from some genetic propensities towards um, uh, neuroticism. And, and so getting more money doesn't help you because it's not really the problem, right? So yeah. that, that's, that's one of the, that's, that's a big part of this. Um, the yeah. other part is no, here materialism really is the problem. It's actually causing the unhappiness. Uh, there are different types of needs that people have. And in the theory that's uh, prominent here, they often call them intrinsic versus extrinsic needs. So I think of this with a nutrition metaphor. This is your body needs certain types of foods to give it the nutrition it needs. Your spirit or your mind or your brain needs certain kind of nutrients to feel happy and healthy. And three that have been very much identified are the good social relationships. We talked about that briefly. A feeling uh, that you're making a contribution, that you're giving something, you're productive and important because you are providing important things to the society and you're making a difference uh, in this way. And a feeling of personal growth, that you're getting to be a better person and you're enriching yourself and you're becoming more sophisticated or more knowledgeable or more healthy or more effective or, you know, growing in all these different ways as a person. So those are the three things that if you feed those, you produce better, more happiness for yourself. Uh, on the other hand, there are things that people want that are like junk food. They're attractive to us, but they don't give us the nutrition we need to be mentally happy. And the three big ones there are uh, money, being good looking, and being famous or, or super popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the things that teenagers want. All the things that teenagers want, <laughs> right? And, and junk food. And so the argument is that <laughs> if you're focused on these, what are called the extrinsic motivations, that you want more money, you want to be better looking, and you want to be more popular, then those um, detract your attention. That becomes the focus of your life, and that detracts your attention and effort from the from focusing on the things that would make you happy, which are having better close relationships with people, which is a little different from being popular. Being popular is like having lots of followers on Facebook, right? As opposed to like actually having deep relationships with people you trust you can talk to. Um, so if you, if you, it causes you to misallocate your time and energy to these other things. Uh, there's a psychologist, Tim Kasser, who's done a tremendous amount of work on this. And if you're interested in that, um, just Google Tim Kasser and you'll find his research and it's great. Uh, and one of the things that he's found is if you measure people over time. So some people have this goal of like, I'd like to make more money, right? And other people have this goal of like, I'd like to form stronger relationships with people. Um, having the goal of wanting to make more money, just having the goal itself makes you unhappy, right? And then if you achieve the goal, it does not produce the expected happiness. Um, and then you keep wanting to get more and more and it still doesn't produce the happiness, but somehow you don't yeah. get rid of the goal, right? Whereas yeah. uh, having the goal of having closer relationships, that just that goal itself makes you a little bit happier. And then if you do achieve the goal, you get happier and you stay happier. You get lasting happiness from achieving the goal. 
So it's not just a matter of like achieving your goals. Some goals, if you achieve them, bring happiness and other goals, if you achieve them, don't bring happiness. Uh, so that's the other kind of explanation behind that relationship. Yeah. So I have so many other questions. I'm trying to, to choose the one that I, I did, didn't do. But, but let's go with, with the connection between products and, and happiness. So I, I know that there are some products that when I go like through the mall, I will just stop and, and nothing could prevent me from going into the store. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, it doesn't happen. But there are very few of them that it, I feel something when I go into the store and buy something very specific. And my, I know, my gut feeling is that it's related to the fact that I'm feeling something when I buy them. I, I have like, I feel like I have a value which is different when I have them or they even just make me smile at that moment and afterwards it's done. But at least I, I, I feel that. But I guess it's much more deeper than that. How, how, tell us about that because I know it's, you have lots to say about these things. Yeah. So... In general, if you're talking about happiness, uh, I'm going to give you the in general and then give you this weird counterexample situation at, at the end. So in general, there's two good ways of relating to products and purchasing and one bad way. So one good way is the sort of non-attachment, non-materialistic approach, which is just, I don't care. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about other things. I've got other projects I'm busy with, like what products are available for sale and whether I want them or not, it just does not take up much of my mental real estate. Um, so that attitude is generally associated with happiness and it's a good thing. If you've got that, you're good. Don't worry about it. That's fine. The bad approach, which is very much associated with materialism, is you might think that materialists would really you know, love their possessions. That's kind of the stereotype. They love it. Yeah, they, right. They don't necessarily love their possessions. Really? Uh, <laughs> That's they, counterintuitive. Yeah. They love things they don't have. They don't, because if they love the things they did have, they wouldn't want to replace them with new things they don't have. So they want more. They, they, want, they want more, more. right? They want more. And so they're not focused on the actual things they own. They're focused on what things they don't own and how, how much better it would be if they owned those. And there's a, a researcher, Marsha Richens, who's done a lot of work on materialism and has some great work on this. And she finds that uh, for materialists, they get the most pleasure out of a product before they buy it. And so you go, how do they get it out of, you know, how do you enjoy something before you buy it? Well, it's because you have these daydreams. And so they have these yeah. daydreams about how great it'll be when they own this. And the daydreams are really pleasant for them and really exciting. And so they get a lot of value out of the daydreams. But then when they buy the product, the minute they buy it, they start liking it less and less and less as time goes on. And wow. it's because they, they think that it's going to transform their life. It's going to make them popular and whatnot. It never does. It does their life doesn't really change because they own this thing. Um, and so they get quickly disappointed. And then, of course, you would think logically, they'd say, well, maybe this whole approach is not a good idea. But most of the time, it's not their response. Their response is, well, I guess that product didn't work. There must be a different yeah. one. 
right? Yeah, and for sure. So it's the, like that you like Thursdays more than Sundays because the anticipation to the weekend is much more powerful than the weekend itself. I've not heard that. That's really interesting. That makes yeah, a lot of sense. Most people like Thursdays more than Sundays. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so there's, you know, so that's the really wrong approach. Then the third approach, <laughs> which can work for people, because like, suppose you're someone who really likes clothing. Uh, as an example, I'll give. Uh, the the non-materialist might say, oh, don't be so petty and trite, caring about your appearance. You shouldn't like clothing. Just, you know, don't worry about clothing. Well, you know, if you like clothing, you don't want to not worry about clothing. You like clothing. Well, you right. know, this is the source of pleasure in your life. And really, mm -hmm. there are ways of really liking or even loving things like clothing that are mentally healthy and are not necessarily a problem. Um, and here, the focus is on how do I learn to love the things I have and say, okay, I love clothing. I'm going to put that love into actual items of clothing I already own and loving them and taking care of them and thinking about when I can wear them and wearing them and enjoying them, right? And not focus all the time on the things I don't own and how disappointing everything I own is. So. Yeah you know, shift the focus to away from loving things and you don't own to, to loving things you already have and that are actually in your life. And if you can right. do that, then you can <laughs> lead a life that's sort of richer and more full of love because you're surrounded by all these things that you love. And it is possible to, to do that to uh, an extent. And there's weird ways of doing it. Like one way, um, well, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but I'll give this, this it's really funny, but it's true. So one of the things that leads people to love things is to anthropomorphize them, which means you get your brain unconsciously to treat them like a person, even though you know consciously they're not a person. So classic example, people who name their cars. When you name your car, you talk to your car by yeah. name, you form this closer relationship because your unconscious mind starts to see it as a person. Um, people who name their cars uh, keep their cars for longer, repair their cars more, keep them in good running condition. They take care of their cars. And, yeah. uh, and that's not a bad form. It's not a bad thing to do. You can argue maybe it's materialism, maybe it's not materialism. I don't really care. It's mentally very healthy to yeah. take care of your things and to, to enjoy them. Right? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, and we name our cars always. Yeah. The kids we are taking together, what the name of the car would be. And when we were abroad, we were thinking, how how is is the car? <laughs> do they miss the, the car? Do they miss the car? And they miss the car miss them and all of that. <laughs> yeah. So form these sort of attachments. Now, the the flip side is sometimes you'll have you'll will have formed an attachment to something, and then it breaks, and you need to get rid of it, and oh. it, it's hard to get rid of it because you formed this attachment to it. Sure. Right? Which is yeah. good if it keeps you from buying something new and you save money, but it's bad if this thing is really broken or stained or doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Um, I so some of the ways to do this, um, Marie Kanto has some really good advice on this. And one way is to take a photograph of it so that you have like a little photo album, maybe online or in flesh or whatever. And you're like, these are the things I love, which I no longer have in the flesh, but I have the photo to remind me. And so you take the photo and then you can get rid of the object. 
The other <laughs> is to say, well, the reason I can't get rid of this is that my brain unconsciously thinks it's a person. So I need to say goodbye to it and treat it, say goodbye like I would to a person and say like, you know, it's, you know, you're going to, you're not happy here because I can't use you. Right. And so we're going to give you away to some other person who's going to, you'll be much happier there or just, you know, I can't use you. It is time for the next stage in your life, you know, where, where, where you yeah. go and do something new or whatever it is. Yeah. So I totally understand. That's why we have two cars, although we were supposed to sell the other one like two years ago and the, the kids wouldn't do that. <laughs> and now we have an excuse that one of them would have a license soon. So we're saying, okay, this is why, why the car is still here. But I wanted to, to just to clarify before I, I'm, I'm giving you like the option to, to, to say to people, how would they contact you? The, the question is, is when you're saying materialism from the bad aspect of it, Mm -hmm. you're saying that sometimes we have this whole or lacking something from our childhood, from our pre previous mm -hmm. traumas, and we're trying to cover that with materialistic things yeah. around us. And that doesn't work. You cannot fix that with a better right. car or, right? Yes. And most people think that once they do have the car, whatever, or I know the Air Jordans, whatever, then they would feel more content. They will feel more whole. Mm -hmm. They will feel happy. And once it goes from there, it will never work. Right. So yeah. So it's it, you're not gonna you're not gonna fix a problem in your childhood by buying a designer purse. This is not gonna happen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's but you can, you know, you can fix those things by having stronger relationships. Because what you're really missing, that's I think part of the reason why the strength of your social relationships is so important. Um, and there is a link between objects and the strength of our social relationships. So one of the main reasons that people love objects is that they either symbolically or practically help support our relationships. So there was work done many years ago, some of the original work um, by Rochberg Halton and uh, a guy Csikszentmihalyi who's become very famous after this. He did work on flow and happiness. Some people may have heard of him. So yeah. in this study, they went to a lot of different people's homes and they asked them, is there anything in the home I would have asked that you love? They asked the same essential question, but they phrased it as it's a very special possession to you that you would feel bad if, it went, if you lost it. It's that kind of thing. Um, and then they also, they, so they interviewed people about this, but they also uh, did measures about how connected the people were socially to other people. And what they expected was that the people who had the, the strongest feelings about and attachments to objects would have the weakest social relationships with other people because they were sort of substituting the objects for the people. That's what mm -hmm. they expected going in. What they found was the opposite. The people who had the strongest attachment to the objects also had the strongest relationships with other people. And That's strange. Yeah, it's not, it seems strange, but there's there's two reasons for it. So one reason is that when if you think about this, uh, you know, so listener out there, if, you, if someone asks you, you know, what are the things if if you could only save three things from your apartment or your house, you know, what are the yeah. things you could save? Most of the time, well, people now would say my laptop, right, because it's got everything. <laughs> but aside from your laptop, it might be like a photo album, or it might be like a yeah. gift. That, that would be the first thing that comes to my mind is like the photo albums. Right. 
And so, or, or maybe something you inherited from your family. Well, all of these objects, the things that you love, they're all things that connect you to other people. Why do you want the photo album? It's because it has photographs of you and other people in it, or just other people that mean a lot to you. Why do you want to save that thing that you inherited from your family? It's because it connects you to, to your family and these other people. So people who have close relationships have a lot of objects that mark those relationships, like a photograph. You've got friends, you have a photographs of you and your friends. You don't have any friends, you don't have any photographs of you and your friends, right? You don't have any gifts from your friends or family, you know, these sorts of things. So that kind of emotionality really attaches to objects usually because they have some sort of a connection to a person. The other reason is that there's some people who are just relationship oriented. And they, you know, if you're a relationship-oriented person, then you form relationships with people and you form relationships with objects. Yeah. Not relationships. I understand that. You don't have relationships with people. You don't have relationships with objects. You want to believe what the objects have names or, you know, families. Like, everything has names. Yeah. You have like, this small, um, what do you call the things that you attach to the keys? The uh, keys? A key fob or like a, 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 a key chain? Yeah, or... it's like connected to the key. It has no meaning. It's just connected to the key. And we have a name for it. So when I say you bring me the key, I would say the, the name of this small hedgehog. Oh, <laughs> right. It's like yeah. everything has a name. And it, it makes sense to me that when you're so related to people and to things, you give them name and you're relating to, to them. So it makes yeah. sense. Well, in the, in the book, The Things We Love, um, the whole, this is the central thesis of the book, um, which is that love evolved in animals before we were ever, humans ever existed as humans. Um, and it evolved for the purpose of motivating parents to take care of their children or motivating parents to take care of each other as they took care of the children or having the children linked to the parents so that their children run off and get eaten by a predator and said they were connected emotionally to the parents and they stayed close to the parent, right? So it, it had this function within the reproductive family. And that is the essence, that's where love evolved. And you can see that because animals that, because not all animals take care of their, their kids, right? Like a fish where they lay the eggs, fertilize the eggs and then swim off and that's done. Right, that's a, that. Most species actually do it that way, you know. And well, other species though do take care of and raise their kids. And so this love, which in animals we simply call bonding, but it's it's the same basic neurological kinds of processes. Um, this bonding only occurs in species where they take care of their their offspring. So it it one hundred percent of species where they take care of their offspring have bonding. And 100% of species where they don't take care of the offspring do not have bonding. So it's very clear why this evolved. And so it evolved in the context of these relationships for people between us and other people. And as a result, one of the criteria in your brain for loving something is that your unconscious brain has to designate it as being a person. It doesn't meet that criteria. It does not get loved. Uh, and that's there's a lot of different ways that your brain will end up designating something as what I call, I call it an honorary person to be good. It's not really a person, but you're going to, your brain's going to treat it like a person. So it's yeah. an honorary person 
right? And one of the ways that your brain makes things sort of an honorary person is if you name them, right? Or you talk to them, right? And, and this, this creates it. And so that really enhances love. The other two ways are your brain connects it to another person. So it's like one, one guy says, oh, I love this hat. I got it as a gift from my dad. My dad always wore this hat. I always saw him wearing the hat. And then he gave it to me and it was a really nice gesture, right? And so the hat in the guy's mind is really connected to his father. And, right. and therefore he's seeing the hat as an honorary person because it has this connection to a person. Yeah. And the third way, which is the most common is that you make it part of your own identity. So there's a lot of things that are objects and this can be like, if, I, if you make the object, you feel like it's part of your identity, but also if you buy the object, that makes it a little bit part of your identity. If you work on it, that makes it more part of your identity. If people see you using it, so if it's used publicly, that makes it much more part of your identity than if it's only private. So once things become part of your identity, then your brain thinks about them in this social way because you're a person and uh, you're, you might love that thing there as well. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Wow, it's been so interesting. So before I ask you about where can they contact you, we didn't do the name thing. So how did you get the name Ahuvia, which is loved by God in Hebrew? Yes, it is. So, um, so I'm Jewish. My wife is Jewish. Uh, I wanted to, when we got married to have the same name, and she did not want to take my name for feminist reasons. And I did not want to take her name out of petty spite because she wasn't taking my name. So <laughs> we decided, we decided <laughs> to take a new name. We were going to take a third oh. name. And since we were both Jewish, we wanted a Hebrew name. Yeah. Um, and then my dad complained. He said, this is cutting you off from the family. You shouldn't do this. So I said, well, let's take, let's try to make my dad happy too. So um, we looked at, what our names were like the traditional family name because i grew up aaron bernard but the family name from europe was bogoslavsky uh and so bogoslavsky is translated as beloved of god so we thought okay let's do something translated as beloved of god so that would be ahuvia yedidia and dodia would be our choices yeah um, and then we figured because well, in english um if your kids are growing up and their last name is dodia the, the friend, you know, people at school are going to call them the dodo brains, and that's yeah, not which is not good. Yeah. And if your last name is Yadidia, then you'd be the Yadidiot, and that's not yeah. very good either. But Ahuvia, yeah. they couldn't really figure out. There was nothing to tease yeah. the kids about the hood. So we chose. Yeah, but it's not the same meaning. You know, like Dodia is like the uncle of God, and Yadidia is like the friend of God, but Ahuvia is like loved by God. Oh, which really? is the right translation. Oh, well, that's. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. It makes sense when you say it. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Um, my Hebrew's not very good, but I, I can I pick up on that. So thank you. So you you <laughs> picked the, the, the right translation. So we picked the right one. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes, like, we'll meet other Ahuvias, and they'll be like, oh, are we related? And at first, we were like, no, there's no way we're related. But then it turns out that they were also people who translated Bogoslavsky into Hebrew. And that's how they ended up with Ahuvia. Oh, so funny. sometimes maybe we were, because we had the original name. Wow, that's a great uh, story, and I love it. Yeah. So that's the last question and the longest interview that I had till now, and maybe we should have another one afterwards. Where could people hear more about your work and your book and contact you? Okay, so 
Um, the book is called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And after that whole discussion, I think people remember the name Ahuvia. There aren't that many Ahuvias. There is actually a Rabbi Ahuvia. Uh, my wife is a Rabbi Ahuvia. There's another Rabbi Ahuvia that actually publishes something. Um, yeah. So I'm not the only Ahuvia author in the world. But you just look you Google Ahuvia and love or brand love or something and you'll find me. Um, the work that I do really has two different parts. So in this discussion, we focused on the work around happiness and well-being. And I do a lot of speaking and I would love uh, to come, you know, anyone, I don't know if you have a primarily Israeli audience or not, but if you do, anyone who's organizing a conference in Israel, my wife and I would love to come to Israel. So we'd love to be invited. Please invite us to come and speak at your conference. That'd be great. Um, and uh, we, uh, so this, this work is on happiness and I do this, but then I've got this other side, I'm a marketing professor. And so the question is, how do you create products that consumers will love? Or if you are uh, working on branding, how do you create brands that will inspire consumers to love your brand? And this is all around the, the topic of brand love. And I started the research on brand love. Um, I was the, the research I did for my dissertation was the first major scientific research on brand love. And that was, so there was one study at that point. Now, if you put brand love into Google uh, Scholar, you'll find over 14,000 studies by different people around the world. So it's a very, it's a very area that interesting continues to grow very rapidly in this topic. Um, so if you are doing a design conference, um, I teach uh, human-centered design as well as marketing. If you're doing design or marketing and you want something that's a little bit more focused on that side as opposed to like the well-being, um, I'd be very happy to do that as well. I, the last thing I'll say is um, I have a blog through Psychology Today called uh, Peace, Love, and Happiness and Marketing. And it is uh, um, available. You can sign up for that if you go to my website, The Things We Love. You'll find a link there to sign up for the blog. Wow. So first, I, I'm sure it's going to be really interesting. I'll try all of these and I'll try the book too. And I want to thank you for being here and it's been very insightful and interesting. And the first thing I'm going to do is go to talk my, to my teenager and, and telling all, all the things that, that you agreed with me, which is good. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a great, uh, great pleasure. Sure. And, um, I really, I, I wish you the best with the podcast and uh, all the folks who are listening out there. I wish you uh, much love and both uh, in your personal relationships and also in the rest of your life. Yeah, thank you. And to all of you joining us, um, I'm so happy that you're here and I'll see you next week with another innovative, insightful talk. See ya. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.